0: Welcome to The Subtext, the show where we take a deeper dive into the realm of technology. I am your host Subhan Habib, but you can call me subs, and in today's episode I'll be exploring two different topics. Apple held an event announcing their biggest change in the last 15 years, and two brand new console generations are finally on their way. I hope you enjoy. So, Apple held their event, dubbed One More Thing. Now, if you know Apple's histories with keynotes and events, you know that One More Thing has quite some significance. So let's just take a quick trip down memory lane to understand One More Thing just a little bit more. This dates back to when Steve Jobs was still announcing products on stage for Apple. And towards the end of the keynote, when everyone thought everything was finished, everything was announced, everything was on the table, a new slide would pop down and it would say One More Thing. And then he'd announce a brand new product or a brand new service that Apple were offering. And this was normally something huge, something unexpected. And that became a staple of Apple keynotes where everybody was looking forward to the one more thing more than the actual keynote itself. So for the first time, Apple actually called their keynote the one more thing event, which I think just shows how big this event, how big of a change for Apple this event is going to be or was to not just them but to their consumers and the developers on their platform just everything around the Apple ecosystem is going to change because of this event. Now the event itself was pretty standard compared to the other Apple events that have happened this year so I think in the last two months they've had three events now which is amazing if you just think about that. So the invitations were sent out as normal and that was a bit of a disappointment for something so big I mean I think I'm going to quote um, the waveform podcast. It may be another podcast, but it was definitely a podcast I was listening to. And they basically said that instead of Apple sending out normal invitations as they did and as they have done previously, what if their YouTube channel just went live for 20 minutes and the hype just kept getting more and more. And then Tim Cook walks on stage, just like Steve Jobs used to do. And then the slide pops down with one more thing. And then he announces the event then. Like that would have been so much more dramatic. And that would have been so much more into the, you know, atmosphere of one more thing. But that didn't happen and we had the event. Now, most of us knew what to expect from this event or similar things to expect based on their WWDC event that happened earlier this year, where they announced that by the end of the year, they're going to release their firm ARM based um, MacBooks. I don't think they actually said MacBooks back then, but I think they just said like Mac devices. We all assumed there's going to be either the MacBook Air or the MacBook, the 12 inch MacBook, because that was always the thinnest. And again, that's where ARM architecture shines. But as we got closer and closer to the event, leaks started to happen and we started to expect both the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro 13. And of course, we all assumed the Mac Mini was going to be one of them just because the dev kits originally were Mac Minis. So it just made logical sense for that to be in it as well. And just as expected, we had three devices announced, the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro 13 and the Mac Mini, all with Apple Silicon, which is basically an ARM CPU. But there's so much more to this than just the ARM CPU because Apple debuted their first ever Mac only chip and that's called the M1 chip. And you can tell from the entire keynote, the entire event that the focus was for this chip and the performance per watt that this chip can achieve. So this is a single SoC for everything included. So an SoC is a system on chip. This is one system on chip for everything that it can house. So normally you have a CPU, a GPU separate, the RAM separate, this has the t2 chip integrated the input controller integrated the gpu the ram everything inside one chip similar to how it's done on the iphone and ipads and that just decreases the delay the latency between interaction between those components so everything is much faster because you have much less overhead and apple is touting how it has a unified memory architecture and they have eight cores in total um, four large cores and four smaller cores and again that's similar to the big little architecture that's common in most phones and it might even be the same architecture where you have four high power cores and four low power cores and now the high power cores are going to be what's used when you're doing like high intensity stuff so if you're doing photo editing or video editing or gaming or something like that you're going to use the high power cores Whereas if you're just, you know, using a notepad or using a calculator or using Chrome, you may just use the low power cores. So the benefit of that is not to slow you down, but the low power cores consume so much less energy than the high power cores. And that gives you like dramatic increases in battery life, which we'll get into in a second. Because again, the performance per watt was what Apple was so keen on emphasizing because that's the key benefit to the ARM architecture. And again, just like the A14 chip, this is built on a five nanometer process. So again, the smaller the nanometer in in theory, the more efficient it is. But again, that depends on how the architecture is actually implemented. But we've seen in the Apple A14 chip that again, we can expect nothing short of like pretty amazing performance per watt. So what does this chip actually mean? What does it mean for, not just for Apple, for the MacBooks, but what does it mean for you guys? So Apple Silicon is based on the ARM architecture. Now, Arm is a company that licenses their architecture to other companies so they can build chips based on their architecture. So imagine Apple takes a blueprint from Arm. They basically do their magic, make it work for their systems and make it to their spec, basically. Similar to how Apple gets Samsung displays, AMOLED displays, but makes it, you know, an Apple display because they do so much tuning to it that it's no longer like a standard sampling display. Similar here is no longer a standard Arm Cortex anything. It's no longer a standard core. It's quite unique in what it is, but inherently that's very different to what Macs have been up until now. For the last decade and a half or so, Apple has been using Intel chips, so that's an x86 platform, which is a CISC architecture. Now, ARM is a RISC architecture, and what that basically means is when you write code, when you write an application to run on macOS, you write code in a language and you may think, okay, that same code is going to run on everything that runs that operating system. Sure, but when you distribute it, you create binaries. And now those binaries have instruction sets, and you basically compile a set of instructions for an architecture. And up until now, all of the Mac applications have been compiled for the CISC architecture, which is what x86 uses. now. Apple changing to a risk architecture means that those apps won't natively run on these systems. And that means that they have to be recompiled, again with the similar source code, if not the same source code, but still have to be recompiled for the risk architecture. Now, this isn't an issue for any Apple app because naturally Apple have done this for their own stuff. So all of their stuff has been recompiled and is ready to ship as and when the MacBooks get released. So that's not an issue, but the issue comes with third party apps. So one of the key things that Apple said was a benefit of the M1 chip was not just because it was, you know, faster for the same amount of power or more power efficient in some scenarios or the GPU was x amount more powerful None of that was the key thing that Apple focused on Apple made a point to point out that their optimizations between hardware and software is where they're going to really shine So what we can learn from the iPhones and the iPads is that when Apple makes the hardware and the software everything works hand in hand and it's so much more optimized so if we compare like an iphone to a standard android phone um the spec for spec list is going to be quite poor and quite lacking but we can all see that the performance that you actually get from the iphone is quite dramatic so in general the iphone would have what two four six gigs of ram whereas android phones are now having 12 gigs of ram in some scenarios and they don't get twice the amount of background processing like they just don't because when you have control over both the hardware and the software You can optimize everything so much more and apple was really focusing on that and not only that because now it runs on the same architecture as ipads and iphones you can now run all of the iphone and ipad apps natively on any mac system that runs on those new chips but the issue comes when you try to run third-party apps that aren't actually recompiled yet so if you are a professional of some sort and say you use the adobe creative suite Those apps won't natively run on the new chip on any of the devices that have been announced just of yet. So I definitely wouldn't recommend buying them just yet. At least wait until they've been recompiled and distributed for those platforms. Because in the keynote, Apple did say that Lightroom is going to be one of the first apps that does come from Adobe. But again, that's still coming. It's in the process. It's not out yet. It should be out soon. And they said that Photoshop will be the proper non-Lightroom app that will come and that would be in 2021. So again, say you're using After Effects or Adobe Audition or something like that. Native versions of those apps may not come until well after, because we can learn a lesson from when Apple and Adobe announced Photoshop for the iPad, which again, I think it's two years down the line, still hasn't come completely to the iPad. It's still like a cut down version. So timeframes may be a bit sketchy and only time will tell. But Apple is saying that's not an issue because they have Rosetta 2. And now what Rosetta 2 is, is basically a system which when you install the application, if it's not for that architecture, it would try to you know, translate it to the architecture before you run it. So when you run it, it will seem okay. And it may be completely fine, but it may depend on the app. And if your app heavily utilizes GPU cores and it's expecting say CUDA cores or an AMD GPU, it won't be optimized for the GPUs in this just yet. So again, hold off until people have it in their hands, people can test it, and then see if the apps you want to use are working fine on it or not. You may need to hold back until the second generation of these devices or the M2 chip or something like that, just because by that time, it'll be a lot more streamlined and there'll be a lot more devices out there and a lot more apps supporting it. So again, it's basically just a waiting game because it's gonna happen and we just don't know when it's gonna happen. Now, I do wanna quickly touch on the event itself for months and months, maybe over a year, since the MacBook Pro 16 got announced, we've been expecting a 14-inch MacBook. Now, you may say 13 inches big enough, but the actual chassis wouldn't get bigger. It's sort of what they did with the 15-16-inch, to 16 inch, where the bezels got smaller, but the screen got bigger, and the actual footprint stayed pretty much the same, so you'd just get a smaller gap around the screen. That didn't happen, and not only didn't that happen... There were no changes to any of the hardware whatsoever. I mean, the MacBook Air screen got a bit better, but that's it. And the reason so many people wanted this redesign and were expecting it is we thought the first devices that Apple releases with their own chips would be like a staple in Apple history, because it is a staple, and we thought that would be a massive redesign for their systems as well. Because just naturally, it makes sense if you announce your own chip, and your brand new device at the same time it just sort of goes hand in hand but that didn't happen and that was a bit of a disappointment but again it's not the end of the world because again the designs are still fantastic now one other thing i want to point out about this event it seems like the more apple do their events online virtually the more they just don't care about actual information Like when I say information, I don't mean that it has a T2 chip or it's built on a five nanometer process. Of course they gave us that information, but when it comes to like detailed information, like comparisons, they are extremely vague now. So in the past, Apple was not shy about talking about their performance compared to a specific other laptop or a specific other chip or their own device from the previous year or something like that. They weren't shy about saying, oh, we've got 30% more performance in this or that compared to this exact spec, but now, It's completely vague. Not only did they not do a comparison to any device, they just used like very generic terms and the graphs weren't labeled. So you just had axes with uh, no, no labels to them whatsoever. And you just had two curves on it. And it just said, this is the new M1 chip. Great. What does that mean? There was no detail given. It was so vague. What does that curve mean to the left? Like why is it over to the left? What does that actually mean? You just have like a dotted line going saying this is twice as efficient but that doesn't mean anything to us that you're not comparing it against anything and when they were comparing saying it's 2.5 times faster or three times faster they compared it to the latest pc laptop chip what is the latest pc laptop chip That, again, doesn't mean anything. That could be the latest one in their devices, which isn't the latest one that's out because the 11th Gen have just come out, which Apple most likely haven't tested against. That could be an Intel chip, an AMD chip. It could be an i3, M3, i5, i7, i9. That could be anything. All of those have different performances and they have different power usages. So comparing it against the latest PC laptop chip means next to nothing. And then another comparison that was made was saying that the M1 chip is three times faster than the best-selling Windows laptop in its class. What does that mean? What class is this? Is it an Ultrabook class? Or is it the new Intel Evo class because that's a new class that was just announced by Intel and that's most likely what they're not comparing it against because that's brand new and Apple haven't had time to make that comparison. And when you say the best selling Windows laptop, the best selling laptops aren't always the best, especially when it comes to Windows laptops. The best selling Windows laptops are normally the ones that are on sale. And the ones that are on sale are normally not the best ones because the best ones don't go on sale that often. So it's most likely going to be some random Acer one that you get for 300 pounds off on Black Friday or something like that. And that means next to nothing again, because we don't have any comparisons that we can, you know, see and look at and say okay for this it's three times faster or for this it's 50% you know more power efficient it just means nothing so that was quite disappointing to hear because we were all expecting some sort of you know authentic numbers or authentic information and sure it was authentic but it wasn't accurate it didn't actually give us an insight to anything so it was just a bit disappointing But the upside to it was when they announced battery life and the performance gains there because they did compare it to their previous gen. So to their um, 2019 MacBook Pro 13 and the MacBook Air that was released earlier this year. Now that's where in my mind the best information is because that affects everybody. The actual raw CPU and GPU performance only affects some people, but the battery life affects everybody. So now they've got up to 20 hours of video playback on a single charge And in the MacBook Pro's case, that's 100% increase. That's two times the battery life. And they've made no changes to the hardware. So the same hardware with a different chip has given two times the battery life watching videos. And that's just amazing, 20 hours. So this M1 chip, because of its efficiency, it's the same chip in the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, and the Mac Mini. But they have different designs, different thermal designs to them. So the MacBook Air doesn't have a fan. So again, it's gonna be thermally constrained compared to the MacBook Pro and the Mac Mini, which both have a fan, an active cooling fan. So the MacBook Air, sure it has the same chip, but it's gonna perform a tiny bit less than the MacBook Pro and the Mac Mini. And the MacBook Pro and Mac Mini can sustain their performance for a longer period of time, because when the CPU heats up, they can turn the fan on, ramp it up, cool it down, which can't happen on the MacBook Air. So even though the MacBook Air can edit 4K ProRes footage, it might not be able to do that for long. Like it might just be short bursts or if it's really optimized. But again, we can't know for sure until we actually test them out. So some of the information we do know is that the MacBook Pro comes with a 61 watt power adapter and the MacBook Air only comes with a 30 watt power adapter. Now you can read into that as much as you want, but in my mind, it means that the MacBook Pro might be using twice as much power as the MacBook Air from the M1 chip. Um, That doesn't mean you're gonna get twice the performance, that doesn't mean anything like that But it just means that Apple thinks in order to charge your MacBook Air Versus charging your MacBook Pro whilst you're using it You're gonna need twice the power going in Just so it doesn't, you know, run out of battery as you're using it and charging it But again, we need to wait until we actually get some to understand what's actually happening Now one thing that does confuse me, and I don't mind too much on the MacBook Air But on the MacBook Pro, with the Pro moniker Just calling it a pro means you're targeting a certain amount of people. They have limited this to 16 gigabytes of RAM. Now the MacBook Pros 13 inch before this have had 32 gigabytes and for them to reduce it on the max option so you can't you can't upgrade on the Apple website. You can't upgrade it after the fact. The max you can get in this laptop is only 16 gigabytes. Now I know tons of people which that alone and that's the only reason alone makes this a deal breaker. So everything from, you know, developing apps, to running emulation, to running some Adobe applications, everything intensive may require more than 16 gigabytes of RAM. For example, in Adobe Premiere, editing 4K video requires more than 16 gigabytes of RAM and you just can't get around that with optimizations because it's a physical limit of RAM. You just need more physical RAM to do certain tasks. And I, th- I think they have missed the mark here where they should have offered a 32 gigabyte version But maybe the memory controller isn't up to it yet, maybe the M1 doesn't have a memory controller that's capable of more than 16GB of RAM, we don't know. But I was pleasantly surprised that they have Thunderbolt support, so that's great. But it seems like on the MacBook Pro they've cut it down from 4 to 2, and for some people again this is a big issue where they do connect more than one thing um, to their MacBook. And now to only have 2 Thunderbolt ports may be an issue. So I do think this is a limitation of the M1 chip because there's no reason for Apple not to do it unless they physically can't because it's not common for a company to reduce the use cases for the laptop generation to generation. They normally increase it. So I think this is a physical limitation of the M1 chip. Now, another thing which I think this bugs people more than the other two is that the M1 chip doesn't support an external GPU. Now, that's a huge thing. So, so many people would have the MacBook Pro 13-inch and, you know, when they get home, they'd hook it up to an external GPU and get more power from that GPU and then when they're on the go, they can have a lightweight laptop just because you physically can't fit a heavy-duty GPU in a laptop just because of, you know, physical limitations. But for the M1 chip to not support it at all, that is a massive downgrade for some people because no matter how good the M1 chip's GPU is, it's nowhere near as good as a dedicated external GPU so again this cuts out a lot of pro people from the macbook pro 13 inch and maybe that's the reason they didn't announce a 16 inch version as well because they just know that a lot of people with the 16 inch version are going to be even more heavy duty than the people with the 13 inch macbook pro and again they still sell the older macbook pro for maybe that exact reason but overall i do think this was a fantastic event and a great set of product announcements which I believe are all already up for pre-order so you can order them now on the Apple website and expect them to come in the next couple of weeks I think maybe towards the end of the month I'm not entirely sure but you can pre-order them now but I do advise you if you are intending to use it for a specific application to first check um, to see if the apps that you're going to use it for are recompiled for the new architecture and if they're not, just wait, hold on for a tiny bit to see how they run on reviewer's laptops just in case the one that you want or the software you need doesn't run as well on this as your old or existing laptop. But yeah, that was pretty much it from this entire event. This was entirely focused on the M1 chip and the three new Macs that were announced. So we should see more and more of Apple's devices switching over to this If not the M1 chip, then an M2 chip or an M1X chip or something like that. But again, everything is going to eventually switch over to this. And for most people that can only mean good things. So now let's move on to the consoles. Now, as most people who follow any sort of news know, there are brand new Xbox and PS5 consoles. So the Xbox Series X, the Xbox Series S, the PS5 normal version, and the PS5 digital only discless version. I'm not entirely sure what the name is for that. So let's just quickly go over what they actually are. So let's start with the Xbox. So the Xbox Series X and Series S. Now they follow on their natural successors to the Xbox One X and the Xbox One S. So the Xbox One S was a lower power version of the Xbox One X. So the Xbox One X was sort of a high performance version. Similarly here, the Series X is a high performance version of the Series S, or you can see it the other way around, the Series S is the lower performance version of the Series X. Either way, the Series X is capable of 4K 120 frames a second, in quotes, in massive quotes, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, The Series S is capable of up to 1440p, 120 frames a second. So again, they're targeting just basically different resolutions at the same quality and same frame rate but at just slightly less resolution, which may not matter to some people. But both of the Xbox consoles allow you to put a disc in. Now, the disc doesn't mean that you're not going to use up space on the console. So again, when you put a disc in, it's going to copy that or install that to the Xbox itself. So either way, you're going to have to use up the internal storage to run your game. But again, you do have a disc for both of them, so you can, you know, buy a disc or buy a used game or sell your game after you are finished with it and you know get some money back, get some rebates or give it to your friend or something like that so that's still a benefit now if you jump to the PS5 you have two versions you have the PS5 and I'm going to call it the normal version from now on which is capable of 4k 120fps again same as the Xbox Series X and then you have the second PS5, the digital only version Now what they mean by that is it doesn't have a disc slot, so it's just purely downloading from the internet. But again, it's capable of exactly the same as PS5, so 4K 120fps. So internally there's no actual difference apart from just the removal of the optical drive. But now let's get into the pricing because this is where everything starts to get a bit more interesting. So the Xbox Series X is $499 or £449. which surprised all of us because we thought all of these consoles were going to be more expensive just because of the performance they have we thought they were going to be you know around 600 dollars it's it's great to see them undercutting what we thought and the xbox series s is 299 dollars or 249 pounds like that's incredible if you think this is more powerful than the outgoing highest-end console and it's cheaper just all of that performance for 249 pounds that's pretty cool And then the PS5, normal version, is the exact same price as the Xbox Series X, so again $499 or £449. For the digital version, again just removing the optical drive and nothing else, so the same storage, the same performance, the same everything else, is $399 or £359. That's $100 cheaper. So a lot of people who consider the Series S are going to be considering it purely because of the price, right? You're not going to pick a Series S over the X if you don't think about the price. There's just no benefit to it apart from the price. Well, I mean, apart from the size as well, but we'll get into that in a second. But the price is the main thing. Now, if you consider the Series S versus X, the price is nearly half. So from $299 to $499, so $200 more. But then you consider the jump from the Series S to the digital version of the PS5 is only $100 and you get so much more performance. You go from 1440p to 4K, now that's a big jump, it may not sound a lot from 1440p to 4K but that requires a lot more performance to drive those pixels and I think Sony is going to be making much less of a margin, most likely a loss on the digital only version, because there's no way that disc drive costs them a hundred pounds to put in or hundred dollars because their bill of materials is not going to be that high just for a disc drive and I know it's a really good 4k blu-ray drive with xyz but it's not a hundred dollars to them and again they're cutting it off from the price they give it to us at so from 4 99 to 3 99 the PS5 digital seems like an amazing deal but again the biggest thing for people deciding between these two is not actually to decide between Xbox or PS5 because normally people buy a console based on what type of controller they like or what type of exclusive games they're going to play on each platform. So if you're a Halo person, you're going to buy an Xbox or if you like one of the PS5 launch titles, you're going to buy PS5, Like you're not going to consider it based on, okay, this one has 4K this or 4K that, it's just not going to be at the top of your ranking. So most people are going to consider the Xbox Series S versus X or PS5 digital versus non-digital and they all have their benefits and drawbacks. But let's get into what the 4K 120 frames a second means, because that sounded great, and it's, it's still pretty great, and it's a massive leap over the existing generations, which were incredibly underpowered for what they were meant to be. And these are like more powerful than most people's gaming PCs, which is amazing. But thinking that you can run your games, all of them are 4K 120 FPS if you get the highest-end versions of the consoles, is just incorrect. Some games will run at that resolution and that frame rate, but those won't be every game. Those will be like Minecraft or something simple. In most other games, they are very similar to PCs. And what I mean by that is they have configurations, so consoles recently have started to add more and more configurations to the user for if they want better details or if they want a smoother frame rate. And that again is going to trickle down to this. So some games already on the Xbox Series X allow you to choose between 120 FPS or 4K. So normally when you choose 120 FPS, you're going down to 1080p. So you you lose a bit of that detail, but you get way smoother like gameplay. And on the other side, you go back to 60. So if you're not doing anything, which requires like high refresh rate, but you can get more details. So say you're playing a simulation game where you care more about the detail than the frame rate because nothing intensive is happening, Um, you may go for the 4k option, it's totally up to you and the games most likely will let you choose because you can't do both in all games but there will be some that do allow you but again don't expect every game to do 4k 120 fps and even if the games do allow you to do that there's a high chance that most people won't be able to do that because your tv also has to support it and what I mean by that, it has to have the new HDMI 2.1 standard. Most TVs up until now don't support 120 frames a second because they haven't needed to. No console has pushed that. And most people with a gaming PC have a monitor which has high refresh rate. Most TVs that people have are 60 Hertz, which translates to 60 frames a second. And some 120 Hertz TVs, don't have the hdmi 2.1 standard so when you buy a new tv if you are going to buy a new tv for these consoles or in the next few years and you want to make use of that 4k 120 fps you have to make sure that your tv supports both the high refresh rate and it has support for hdmi 2.1 and with some brands that is proving to be a bit difficult because they don't always specify so some tvs don't say they have it but they do Just try to validate it as best as you can before you buy a new TV for this. So now let's get into the storage. Now the storage is a bit of an interesting topic and it, you know, it sounds boring, like who cares? But because all of your games are going to have to run from the storage, you can't run them from the disk itself just because of the nature of the disk being slow and the whole thing about these consoles is their high performance. You have to rely on the internal storage. Now, a quick side note, both of them are compatible with external storage devices but only for last generation games. So you can't play any of the new titles um, that are made for PS5 or Xbox Series X or S off an external hard drive. But you can play stuff for the PS4 and the Xbox One on an external hard drive because they won't be optimized for the high speed so they will be supported externally. But anything new, you're going to have to rely on the internal solid state drive. But okay, so the Xbox normal, the Xbox Series X, has a 1TB drive. Now, considering that some games are going over 100GB in size, even if that 1TB was usable, that would be 10 games, or 10 intense games. So I think Call of Duty is 105GB, something like that, don't quote me. But some games are lower, some games are 50GB or less. So just assume most games are going to be between 50 gigabytes and 100 gigabytes, which again is huge. But from that one terabyte, you only have 802 gigabytes usable. So imagine that being 10 to 20 games that you can actually play at any single time, which for some people isn't more than enough. But for some other people who have huge collections of libraries, that's nowhere near enough. And then we come to the PS5, which has 825 gigabytes. Um, that's not usable storage that's just entire storage the usable amount is 667 which is quite a bit less it's like 140 gigabytes less than the Xbox and that just means what you know four games less which for some people it's not a massive thing but for some again it could be a deal breaker but then you come to the Xbox Series X which is even more confusing because it only has 512 gigabytes which leads us to 364 gigabytes usable, which for some people could mean 4 games, maybe 10, if they're smaller games. For most people now, that's just not usable. Like, that entire storage solution is not usable. Now, they do have options to expand the internal storage. So they both have some sort of a slot to expand it with, like, proprietary stuff. What I say proprietary, the Xbox One is proprietary. So they've announced one, which is two terabytes. It's like a small thing that you plug into the Xbox um, and it's got two terabytes of storage and it's two terabytes of high speed storage. But again, that two terabytes costs $200. And that's the price difference between the Series S and X. So you're gonna end up paying $499 for an Xbox Series S with a two terabyte expansion. It just gets more confusing. So the PS5 has a standard expansion slot, so it's a standard M.2 slot, which many PC um, gamers would be familiar with, but not all of them are gonna be supported, and all of the existing um, SSDs are gonna be supported because they have very specific requirements. So it has to be PCI Gen 4. Um, and it has to be on a list of approved SSDs. So as far as I know, for now there are none that have been officially authorized and they will have to be validated by Sony before you know you can use them in the PS5. But even if it does cost $200 for the two terabytes of storage expansion for the PS5 when it comes out, because it's a standard type of SSD, like it's gonna exist elsewhere, that means the prices will drop because competition will be more fierce and so maybe in like two years time, when you need that more storage, that'll be a hundred dollars or something like that. And it's just more competitive than having a proprietary like input for storage because without competition, prices don't drop. And we can see that from even the PS2 memory card, buying that today, it's still like what 10 quid. And you'd think that would be like pennies cause it only has what 64 megabytes of storage or something tiny. So I feel like the Xbox ones are not gonna go down in price but the PS5 storage will do. And now we come to one of the most controversial parts of these consoles is the size. Now, if we consider the Xbox Series X and the PS5, they are both the biggest consoles ever, period. The Xbox Series S is actually quite small and it's a bit smaller than the Xbox um, Series or the Xbox One S, X, one of them. But that's sort of an outlier here. The Xbox Series X is quite a bit bigger than the PS4 Pro, the Xbox One X, just because it needs that size to house those components and cool them properly and have enough, you know, airflow going through the device, because it's got so much more power, now it's still impressive that they got that small size out of it, because if you were to build a computer of that same spec, it's going to be quite a bit bigger. So it's a fantastic feat of engineering they've done there. And the way they did it is they split the motherboard into two components. So imagine taking a motherboard, cutting it in half and sticking it back to back and putting it in a cuboid. That's pretty much what they did. It's similar to how Apple did the trash can Mac Pro, where they had like one thing in the middle, which had all the GPU, CPU and everything, in like a cylinder shape. And they had one fan at the top or the bottom, which is basically taking in air from one side and pushing it out the other. So it's like an entire like tunnel of air going through. A similar thing has been done here with the Xbox Series X. So again, even though it's bigger, it's still immensely small for the power that it has. And that becomes even more evident when you look at the PS5, because the PS5, no matter how you look at it, is huge. Now, I'm a fan of the PS5's design but I'm not a fan of the size, and again, it's still great that they got that performance in that size, but it's still huge. So imagine taking two PS4 Pros, putting them side by side, and adding a bit more thickness. That's pretty much the PS5. Most people can't fit the PS5 in their TV stands. Like Most people can't fit the Xbox Series X in the TV stand, let alone the PS5. And because of the design of the PS5 being so bold and out there, which some people love, some people hate, it's just gonna be harder for the people who hate it to hide it. But if you go away from the size of the PS5 and the design, there are some key things that PS5 has done which help the user so much. So firstly, you can remove both side panels and that may not sound like great because who's gonna do that? Why would you do that? But it means that you can literally take those off and paint it. You can spray paint it whatever colour you want. So if you want it to be black, so it hides away, just take the white bits off, um, spray paint them black, put it back on, and it just clips in and clips out. I mean, that's not why they did it, but that's just something you can do. So just bear that in mind if you don't like the white colour. But PS5 has a standard design, so it has one single motherboard, so it's not split into two. But what they've done in this to make it you know, unique and have better performance, is they've introduced liquid metal. Now, what does that mean? So, the CPU is normally linked to a heatsink, and the CPU and the GPU they heat up, um, but they're normally linked to a heatsink via some sort of thermal paste, some sort of thermal compound, and that's normally highly conductive, so you can dissipate as much heat as you can uh, from the CPU and GPU to the fans, to the heatsink, and just get more performance out of your device liquid metal is highly conductive like even more so than any thermal compound it just allows for way better heat dissipation and that has been used in the ps5 now that hasn't actually been used in any consumer product before and you may think well if it's so great why hasn't it been used before that's because it's extremely dangerous now not dangerous to you or i but dangerous to the actual ps5 so if even a drop of that ps5 liquid metal leaks or if it touches any part of the motherboard, it could short out the entire motherboard because again, it's gonna be metal. And when metal touches metal and in a liquid form, it could short out any circuit. So people have done this, you know, adding liquid metal to their own computers, like some hardcore modders, but most people don't do this. And companies haven't done this for consumers. Now, the way that PS5 has got around the issue or the concern about it leaking is around the CPU, they've got some sort of a foam thing surrounding it, so it can't leak out. So it sort of encapsulates it and pats it down from both sides just so it doesn't you know leak out when you tilt it or when it moves or anything now when you imagine this liquid don't imagine it like water it's not as runny but it's like a thick liquid like a really thick liquid but it's still liquid so it's surrounded by some sort of a foam now that's great but there is a potential that in a few years time a few years down the line that foam won't be as you know solid or as absorbent or anything as it is now, and there is a possibility that it could leak. Now, I have no doubt that Sony has done extensive testing on just this. Like, I have no doubt that they're extremely confident that this would never happen, unless you actually open it up and mess with it yourself. I have no doubt that this is completely fine and completely safe, and it's the first of its kind. And I think this is exactly how Sony is getting their performance out of their chips, because if you look at it spec for spec, The PS5 seems a bit less powerful than the Xbox, but again, because it has that thermal solution, because it has liquid metal, and in theory it has less thermal constraints, it may be able to run for a higher speed for a higher period of time without heating up. And now for something a bit more interesting, the controllers. Now, this is something that is heavily biased for people. Some people love the Xbox size controller, some people love the positions of the joysticks, some people love the ps5 controller some people love having joysticks towards the bottom where their thumb goes it's all personal preference but there's no denying it that the xbox controller for this generation is pretty much the exact same as last generation there's next to no differences or nothing that you can actually pinpoint and say this is a massive difference whereas the ps5 controller from the first day that we saw it it's just hugely different and i say that in a way that it's actually bigger than any playstation controller has been ever and it's no longer called a dual shot controller it's called a dual sense controller and i didn't understand that at first but the more you read into it the more you understand why they want to emphasize the sensing because not only has it got a brand new design, it has some really cool new features. So one of them is much improved haptics. Now haptics are what you feel when the controller rumbles or you know when you fall in a game and the controller makes some sort of vibration and gives you some sort of feedback to being in the game. This is something that's never done before to this scale. So you normally have basic vibrations that you know you can change the intensity and the frequency of the vibration and it feels a tiny bit different here and there but it's changed everything. So the PS5 ships with a demo game to demonstrate this exact feature, where if you're walking on water, walking on grass, walking on metal, sliding down something, everything feels different. Like the actual controller feels different on every surface. And it's, it's really hard for me to portray this, you know, via voice or even via video. There's just no way to actually demonstrate what it's like without actually using it. But it feels like nothing before like you can walk over something that's blowing wind and feel it as it's happening and it's just so different to what's been done before this could be something that pushes someone over from xbox to ps5 just because of something like this but that's not the only thing because they also have adaptive triggers now you might say what's adaptive triggers is that just a buzzword no these triggers can change the tension within and the force needed to actually you know push them in So what I mean by that, let me give you some examples. Imagine you're playing a racing game or something where you have pedals. Each car could have a different feel to the triggers because of the pedal of the car. The brake pedal or the brake trigger could have more tension than the acceleration just because that's how it works in a car. There's even one game that has utilized this already. I'm not entirely sure what game it is, but it's a shooting game. And basically when your gun locks up, the actual trigger locks up. So you can't push the trigger in because your gun's locked up and When your gun's fine again, you can, you know, pull the trigger, but when it locks up, the trigger's locked. There's just an infinite amount of possibilities with this new controller that can put you in a more immersive mode than any console or PC has done in the past. But it does rely on developers implementing this, and I'm pretty sure they will because this console is going to be around for another 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years or so. And so this technology is only gonna mature as it goes on and more and more games are gonna implement this. At least I hope, I really do hope, because it's been some time since we've seen actual changes to controllers. Like we've seen generational increases and Xbox has pretty much proven this where the new controller is pretty much exactly the same as the one that launched with the Xbox, as the one that launched with the Xbox One. Now, before I close off here, I just wanna talk about a couple of more things. As much as we know about the consoles, we won't know everything about them until they're actually out there and have been for a few months because with anything, they could have issues. So we had some issues with PlayStation consoles in the past where, you know, they would fail to boot or they would have a boot loop or the red light of death on, I think it was, I forgot what PlayStation it was, um, PS3 I think but there could be any number of issues. And of course, with everyone being at home for so long these days, there is no doubt in my mind that most of these are gonna sell out as quickly as they can. But if you can hold out, I'd say hold out because you could probably catch a deal where you get one with a game or you can get it for Christmas or you can get it on the sales Um, and consoles always have bundles. And going forward, the consoles right now, they're quite silent. So all of the reviewers have, you know, talked about how silent they are, how quiet they are. But we say that about every generation because at the start with any device, it's always at its best. But again, over time, over the years, over the months, dust is going to build up within. And when dust gets within, everything has to work a lot harder. So the fans have to work a lot harder to get more cool air in and the CPU gets hotter, the GPU gets hotter. And so two, three years, four years down the line, these could become really loud consoles. But again, we won't know that until it happens or if it does or doesn't happen but one thing that I do like about the PS5's design, compared to the Xbox in this scenario, is, um, and many PC gamers will be familiar with this, where the biggest issue facing your computer is dust builder. So most PC cases have some sort of a mesh material between the fans and the external chassis, where you can remove that material and that catches all of the dust. So you just clean that dust off periodically, say every month or two, and it just prevents dust buildup within your computer. Similarly here, because they both have fans and just naturally it's going to pour dust in, the Xbox hasn't really done anything to help you remove it. Now, PS5 hasn't got a mesh filter or anything like that, but when you take off the side panels, you do get like small grommets or small holes that you can vacuum out the dust from, and I think that's pretty cool. Now, we don't know how well that's going to work, but just the fact that they thought of that and they thought of like longevity with this console is for me a big thumbs up because there's no doubt in my mind that both of these are gonna become louder as the years go on, and both of these are gonna have heating issues maybe like five years down the line, but it's gonna happen at some point. And I think if the PS5's dust mechanism is actually as good as they say it is, it could help delay that inevitable future for maybe a year or two more than the Xbox. But again, this is all speculation based on my part. But that's pretty much it for today's topics. Now that may have been quite a bit of information to take in, but again, there was so much to talk about, I just had to say it, and there's so much that wasn't covered, which may be equally as important, if not more so. But if you have any comments about the Apple event, or if you have any concerns or questions about the consoles, or if you have any suggestions about future topics you want covered, or any information that you think was missing, you can get in touch with me via Twitter, at itsubsy, that's I-T-S-S-U-B-S-Y, subsy. But thank you so much for listening to this podcast.